Well, welcome everyone to Foothills Christian Church. If you're visiting with us uh, on campus for the first time, we are so glad you're here. If you're watching for the first time online, we're glad you are joining us. Our goal here at Foothills is to help you navigate life. And we want to do that by uh, studying the scriptures, teaching you tools, knowledge, giving you skills in order to make your own awesome decisions. We're starting a brand new series called The Moral of the Story. And the entire summer for the next four months, we're going to be studying all of the parables of Jesus. And one of the great things about the parables is it's the most significant way in which we understand the kingdom of God. We know this because almost all the parables start with the kingdom of God is like, and then Jesus tells a parable. So that kind of is a little bit of a giveaway. So, um, our theme for the year is the kingdom of God. And we just want you to look at it from different perspectives. We want you to understand it, to know it so that by the end of this year, you can say, oh, I know completely how to walk and live in the kingdom of God. We are starting in Matthew chapter 13 with the parable of the weeds. Now, if you're a person and you like to go deeper on these things, if you feel fluff is not enough, you can listen to the Salty Pastor podcast. On Tuesdays, we go on an in-depth study of the passage of Scripture. We do a textual analysis of it. It takes about 30 minutes. Uh, on Thursday at 4 o'clock, then we drop a uh, kind of how the principles in the Scripture apply to everyday life. And so we have started on the parable of the weeds, Salty Pastor, episode 297 and 298. You can get that on any of uh, your apps or platforms or whatever. You can also just look it up on YouTube and kind of watch it that way if you so desire. Now, we have lived in our house for about 22, 23 years. When we were first there, uh, there was no houses around us at all. Behind us, to our sides, across the street, we live in a little cul-de-sac. And so over the years, they've built it up, they built homes behind the side, and we have learned a lesson of living in one place for a very long time, all the people coming and going, is that neighbors can make or break your joy in life, right? I mean, they, they can make it. And a lot of our neighbors over the years have been nice. My wife and I just started off early on is when somebody moves in or there's a, you know, moves out. We take them a plate of cookies or something and just say, here's our phone number. We give them our contact info. We say, hey, we're your neighbors. You know, if there's ever an issue or problem, oftentimes they will reciprocate and, you know, say, well, here's our number. And so we kind of trade numbers that way. Get to, you know, we introduce ourselves, so to speak. So uh, most of our neighbors over the years, we've had lots of different neighbors. Uh, our next door neighbors, though, kind of our longest neighbors, lived there forever. And I have a really interesting thing behind us. It's hard to meet those neighbors. And the reason why is because uh, the developer started developing that property before he had permission. So he slanted the sewer in the wrong way. And so the solution to fix his problem was this. I have a picture of it. And what it is, is that this is my backyard. They had to come in and change the elevation of the lots behind us. They had to raise them up about five feet. And so they put in this four foot, not quite four foot tall retaining wall. I actually don't own that, but you know, my backyard goes up to that right? And then on top is a little gravel. And then that vinyl fence, you can see the bottom of it, is a five foot 
tall fence. So if you're standing on the grass, you know, the wall and the fence together is about nine feet high, right? So you, you can't ever like, you know, see them over your fence, so to speak. And, um, but we walk all the way around. It's a gated community. And we'll walk all over there, knock on their door and say, hey, we live behind you. Here's our contact info. And over the years, my, my back wall is about 180 feet long. So it's really, really long, that my backyard. Uh, and so I have three homes behind us. We've had some uh, elderly people live there and other people. And we kind of, you know, I try to help them out and so forth. And then we had this one neighbor at the very, very corner, uh, kind of as far west as you get at my property, and they were literally the spawn of Satan. <laughs> you know, we went over, knocked on their door, and they were like, why are you here? Well, we live behind you, get up. We don't want that. We don't care. You know, one of the things that they did is they would uh, uh, have people over on their back little patio there. They'd get drunk and play their music super loud. And so the, the neighbors would complain. I just, I just kind of have a policy. I, I just don't complain. You know, we get over it unless it's just so egregious. Uh, never had to complain yet. Um, and so, but I think, you know, when the cops knock on their door, I think what happened is he said, well, that guy's a pastor and I know he's the one doing it. So, so he, he was just like, I mean, literally Beelzebub Jr. Um, and so like one time I was building a shed in my backyard in that corner, right? And the shed in Eagle, you are allowed to put a shed on your property that's not more than seven feet high. You, have, you don't need permission. You don't need a planning and zoning. You don't need an act of Congress. You can put a shed anywhere you want as long as it's not over seven feet tall. You can put it right on your property line without any problem. So I'm out there. I put a shed on, built a flat roof. I'm decking it. And all of a sudden... You know, I'm sitting there, you know, a lot of times when I'm building, I'm kind of clearing my mind, you know, just uh, kind of spending some time with God out there on my day off, building this shed, just having a day. And all of a sudden, I hear these F-bombs coming at me, you know, like, what the F and are you, what the F? And then this high-pitched voice is screaming at me, and I look up, and there's my neighbors right there, screaming at me, doing all this kind of stuff. And so when they moved out, um, everybody threw a party. Because they didn't get along with anybody. But when they moved out, you know what they did is, you know how you have like planters and, and hanging plants and stuff like that that you don't want to take with you? Maybe they died or whatever, maybe, maybe some junk. They took all of that stuff and threw it over the fence into my backyard. <laughs> so I spent all that time cleaning up. And I got a great opportunity to work on my skill set of forgiveness, you know? <laughs> Man, neighbors can make or break the joy in your life. And there's a reason I told you that story. So I always, you know, read the scripture that we're going to study. And this time I decided to ask my long lost twin brother to give me a hand on reading the scripture for us. And we're going to start parable of the weeds, Matthew 13, beginning with verse 24 through 30. Listen to the word of God. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat, and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, 
you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Is that just the weirdest thing? <laughs> that is just weird. That is so bizarre. That's AI, you know, and you just type in a thing, you give it a picture, and then you say, hey, please read this passage of scripture, and that's what you come up with. So people are like, why are you doing that? I don't know, because it's weird and different, and that's just how we roll here, you know, sometimes. Now, I want you to understand a few things, though, that are significantly important here, and that is, is that Matthew was written to... Jewish people. And the goal of his gospel was to convince Jewish people that Jesus was actually the Messiah. And so Matthew is a wonderful gospel to read to see the connection between the Old Testament prophecies and then how Jesus fulfilled them. And so the arguments are, there's also a tremendous interaction between Jesus and what he taught in the Old Testament covenant, the Old Testament law. And so it, it's, that's why that book is just so interesting to read. And so the more you think like a Jewish person, then the more what you read kind of pops out to you and, and you go, oh, that makes more sense. You draw more connections. And one of the things is that the Jewish people believed, that's why you had Pharisees and Sadducees, Sanhedrin and all this kind of stuff, is that they believed that the kingdom of God was a geographical location. They believed that the kingdom of God was a specific area of land called the promised land. And they believed that if we keep the covenant, then God will protect and give us the land. He's a protector of the land. They also believed that even though God was omniscient, you know, and of, not of this world, he was in the heavens, uh, the spiritual realm, the way you interacted with God, the way you talked to God or you got guidance from God was by going to the temple. So if you were a Jewish person and someone, a stranger came and said, well, hey, where's God? They'd point to the temple mount, you see, because in their minds, the kingdom of God was a material geopolitical region in the world. And so when Jesus tells this parable, even his own disciples are thinking, okay, I, we don't understand. And the reason they didn't understand what he was saying is because they had yet to understand the true nature of what the kingdom of God really is. So listen to the explanation that Jesus gives down in verse 36. I'll read this and the words will be up on the screen because here's something really important for us to get. Now, Jesus left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. So even his own disciples had no idea what he was talking about or getting at. Verse 37, he answers, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one. That's very important to understand. The weeds are the people of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the harvesters are angels. 
Now, as the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. And he has this phrase that's really unique. Whoever has ears, let him hear. What does he mean by that? Whoever has ears, let them hear. What he's saying is that most people never get this. Most people never really understand it. Now, we have the benefit of knowing the life, ministry, all the teaching of Jesus, his death and resurrection. So that gives us context in how to understand it. The other reason why this is a great place to start in understanding all the other parables is because we understand what's called the principle of correlation. Oftentimes when people... Uh, study the parables. You know what they'll do is they'll say, I'm going to read the parable and then I'm going to make it say whatever I want to say. It's called allegory, right? I'm just going to make up whatever I want because it's a story and I can, you know, make it up, you know? Um, It's like the young girl who came home uh, and she did a Christmas drawing for her parents and it was a plane with a guy um, on the top of it. And mom says, well, what, what is this plane with a guy on top of it? And she goes, well, that's the flight to Egypt. Catch that? Flight to Egypt. It's like, well, who's the big guy on top? Well, that's round, yawn, John. And you mean, oh, you mean that's supposed to be virgin. So people can make things mean anything that they want them to. Now, on the other side of it is what we call one-to-one correlation. And it's like you try to find a meaning for every single fact or every single part of the parable. So so the principle of interpretation is clear, and that is is that by reading his explanation, we understand how Jesus correlates things, and that gives us a model for it as well. So that's why we're going to start with this one. The other final reason of why we want to start here is because it tells us about the nature of the kingdom of God and how it exists in the world today. And notice what he says. He says that there was a field, and then he says the field is the world. Then he says that the Son of Man plants seeds that grow, right? And these are the people of the kingdom of God. Then he says the devil sows seeds of people, right? And these are the weeds. Now, what's really interesting is he says that the weeds and the true wheat coexist side by side. And he says, it wasn't until, if you go back into the original reading, he says, uh, verse 26, when the wheat sprouted and formed heads, the weeds also appeared, or it became clear. Now, uh, my wife's uncle and her grandparents uh, been uh, dryland wheat farmers for, you know, generations, for decades and decades. They plant a crop called winter wheat. And what winter wheat is, is you plant it in the fall, and then it sprouts up into a green leafy thing that's very low to the ground. And, and then it sits that way all through winter, you know, the snow on top of it. During that time, until the ground freezes, the root system for uh, 
winter wheat is growing deep. It, it can now pull nutrients, they say, up to three meters down. Uh, it's really quite remarkable. So it's growing deep. And so what happens, though, is that then in the spring, when it warms up, the wheat starts to grow, and then the, you can have another. There's a weed called darnel, and then it starts with a B. I can never pronounce it properly. But what's interesting is it can grow right next to the wheat, and it can sprout. It looks exactly the same. And you don't know, unless you're a very wise and trained farmer, which is which until it starts to grow and form a head. Then you go, ah, that's wheat. That's a weed. They look exactly the same for a period of time. Now, what he says is interesting is that should the servant say, should we go and should we weed it, pull these bad things out? And he says, no, because if you do that, you're going to uproot the good seeds. So what does that mean for us? Well, because these two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the devil, exist in the world, the field, side by side, we need to set an expectation that our lives, even as followers of Christ, will never be free of injustice, tragedy, suffering, or even touched by evil. We should expect that we are in this field and there will be tragedies in your life. We must expect that there will be suffering in our lives. You must be willing to accept that you will suffer injustice in your life. We're not supposed to be happy about it. We're not supposed to ignore it or deny it, but we should be prepared for it. And that's really the essence, I think, the implication of the parables. How do we prepare ourselves for living in a world where we are surrounded at times by weeds? And that's called training in righteousness. The Bible talks in the New Testament a lot about training yourself in righteousness, developing that strength. Make sure that your root system's going deep, you're growing, so that when it becomes evident, you know the difference between a weed and true wheat. Now, why do we need to set that expectation? Well, the reason why is because oftentimes, if we don't expect bad things to happen, if we don't uh, plan for it, if we don't realize something could happen, a tragedy might happen, or things don't work out the way we expect, we get upset with God. Our reflex is, God, you love me. Why are you letting this happen to me? If you're in high school or you are in college going to university or if you spend any time on social media, if you're on TikTok or YouTube shorts or any of that kind of stuff, you will see this argument that says there is no God because bad things happen in the world. Because if God loved you, he wouldn't let anything bad happen to you. If God was powerful, he wouldn't let anything bad happen to you. So when something bad happens, people are like, man, I guess there's no God, man. Things aren't going good for me. And the reason why is because when things go bad, our first reaction is this, God, I'm your child. I'm a wonderful, productive, pure stock of wheat. You need to get all these weeds out of my life so that I can grow into the wonderful thing I expect myself to be. And yet God's perspective is totally different. Jesus says God's perspective as the owner of the field is this. If I pull all the weeds out of your life, it doesn't strengthen your faith. It does what? It undermines your faith. So the thing you need to do is expect it. And that is a process of training yourself. 
So let's pull three or four different application points out of it for today's living, okay? Number one is that if I'm going to train myself to have this proper expectation that I have to live in this field with weeds around me, is that training in righteousness gives me right expectations about my life across the board, but especially in your marriage. Let's talk about being married, getting married, wanting to be married, okay? When you think about man, I want to get married, I'd love to be married someday, or I'm newly married. Getting married appeals to your deepest desires. I I want to be with someone my whole life. I want a partner to grow old with. I want them to know me and I want to know them. But guess what? Being married not only appeals to your deepest desires, the thirst of your soul, it also reveals your deepest fears and flaws, right? And if you're not prepared for this reality, that will be a problem. Getting married is the greatest joy and adventure of your life. It is also the most heart-wrenching and disappointing thing that you will ever embark on in your life. You get both. And if you're prepared for that, the times of joy and growth and intimacy are off the chart. But if you're not prepared for that, Your relationship, your marriage can be filled with disappointment, bitterness, and resentment. So it's really understanding is that when I train in righteousness, I'm setting the right expectation. It's like this. It's like people who train for marathons, right? When you start training for a marathon, they say, hey, go run this far on this day and then run this far on this day. What they're doing is they're not necessarily training you to finish the race, which is your goal. They're training you to how to hit the wall. Now, when you run a marathon, which I have never had the joy of running one, by the way, but I know lots of people do. They all talk about when you first start, you hit this thing deep into the race, usually around 20 miles or so, where you hit this thing called the wall. And what happens is your body has used up all of its sources of energy where it stores where it's quick to get. That's all gone. So now your body switches over right? To have to go to the deeper spaces to find it. And you hit that wall and it literally feels, you run along, it feels like your whole body just hits a wall. And, but if you can keep moving and get through it, you often experience what is known as the runner's high. And it's a, it's a, a time when the brain releases all these uh, dopamine levels, hormones and things that just give you this serotonin, that give you this euphoric sense of floating as you're running. And so you need to train to hit the wall in your relationships because every relationship hits the wall. The secret to getting really, really good friends is to hit a wall with your friends and work through it. The secret to deeper levels of uh, intimacy in your marriage, better communication in your marriage is train to hit the wall so that when you hit the wall, you move through it and you get the blessing on the other side, okay? You, you know this is true, especially for guys, right? When, when guys, uh, when you have little boys out on the playground, right? You know, there's some jostling and pushing around. They don't like each other. I hate that guy, da, da, da. And finally, what do they do? They come to blows on the playground, and then what happens to those two guys after they have their little fight? They're like the best buddies forever. And, and moms and women listen around, scratch their head, go, what in the world is wrong? That is so weird, you know, but it, I guess it's a guy thing. So the issue is this, is that marriage is, could be the greatest joy, but you must train yourself 
set expectations that there will be difficult times and I need to work through them. Uh, today, I, I, I added this because this week was a little bit of a, a tragedy for all of us who remain, and that is, over the years, I've recommended Tim Keller a lot. Um, I've quoted him oftentimes. A lot of our small groups and men's groups have studied some of his works. One of the best one is Every Good Endeavor, which is, I, I encourage all men to read that book and study that book because it gives you a biblical perspective of work and how, how important it is for you to work as a man. And he talks, uh, uh, the reason why it's kind of sad is because he passed away this week, 72 years old of pancreatic cancer. And he wrote a book called The Meaning of Marriage, Facing the Complexities of Commitment. Isn't that interesting? Facing the Complexities of Commitment with the Wisdom of God. And this is what he says. To be loved but not known may be comforting but superficial. So people love you, but they don't really know you. That's superficial. To be known for who you really are and not loved is our greatest fear. Man, if that person really knew me and what I was like, they don't love me because I'm unlovable. That's our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, it's a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. And listen to this. When you're loved that way, he says, it liberates us from pretense, it humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and it fortifies us for any difficulty that life can throw at us. It fortifies you so that no matter what weed is in your life, it gives you no pause. Training in righteousness sets the proper expectations for what you are going to face in your life. The second thing is that the training in righteousness is all about strengthening your faith in good times because it determines how you go through the bad times, right? You want to train before you get there. We have some really dear friends uh, many years ago whose young child was diagnosed with a horrible, horrible cancer. Prognosis did not look good. The treatment protocol was severe. The whole situation was absolutely unequivocally heartbreaking. Being there when they first got the news, uh, spending time with them, praying and talking, they, they made a comment very early on. They said, well, the first thing we did is we went out and researched, you know, what we had to do and what we were going to experience in going through this. So we set right expectations, like the point we just talked about. And then they said, one of the things we learned is that all couples who have things like this happen in their marriage Almost all of them separate and get divorced. He said, we determined beforehand that this will not happen to us. And it didn't. The reason why difficulties are hard to go through is because they maximize our weaknesses. They, they pull out of us our flaws, not our best selves. And if you train ahead of time to face that, it may hurt and it may be painful, but you've trained yourself to do what? Face it and work through it. And so that's what's critical is I want to develop hope before I need it. Third, training in righteousness sharpens your spiritual reflexes, okay? It, it gets you, it attunes you to the weeds around you, 
right? You're, you're not like the workers who say, well, we have to wait for the good wheat to grow up and then the stalk to form and the head to sprout. Finally, you get to that point. Yeah, I, I know that that's a weed and that's wheat. I know that now. No, you're that wizened old farmer who knows the shape of the leaf and how many leaves they are and the exact nature of it. You could say, well, that's a weed before it ever has to start growing, right? He trained your senses to be able to discern kingdom stuff from non-kingdom stuff. Uh, many, many years ago, uh, we were driving back from Denver when we lived in Wichita, and it was like a Saturday morning. Kim and I were driving, and uh, there's, you know, out there in eastern Colorado and western Kansas, so I mean, I, sometimes hard to even get AM radio. And so, but we got uh, an FM station that was doing NPR, and I met Click and Clack. Now, you're like, who's Click and Clack? Well, Click and Clack were two Boston mechanics who had the long, one of the longest running shows on public radio and one of the most popular shows of all. And people who didn't want to be mechanics, didn't even like cars, would listen to Click and Clack. And the reason why is because they were hilarious. Two brothers with their boss accent, you know, get the quarter over there. You know, they're talking like that and they're bantering with each other, teasing each other all the time. But what was really significant about their show together was this, is what made it so funny is people would call in and say, I have this problem with the car. And they go, what does it sound like? What does it sound like? And so these people would go, well, it sounds kind of like this. They'd make some weird noise. And then they would go, well, is it higher or lower or this? And they it's so funny because they're getting these people to make all the weirdest sounds that you could imagine on a public radio station, you know, tens of thousands of people listening to this. But you know what's so remarkable about They go through this thing, making them make these sounds and doing all this is then they would diagnose the problem with their car just by getting people to make imitations of the noise it was making. They didn't see the car. They didn't plug it into a diagnostic computer or anything. And they were almost always right. I mean, these guys were so good. They could not only diagnose what was wrong with your car by listening to it, they could diagnose your car by getting you to repeat the sounds that your car was making. That's called training. I mean, that is a master level of expertise that most people don't have. The writer of Hebrews says this, solid food is for mature people who through constant use have trained their senses to discern good from evil. This is important because there is a final judgment. Weeds and wheat are separated and it's important to know how to discern the difference way ahead of time. Finally, training in righteousness is about preparing for evil in your life, not avoiding evil. Okay, it's about preparing for evil, not for avoiding it. I think as a parent, this is a significant implication, okay, when you raise your kids. When you're raising your kids, is your goal to keep your children at all times free from all evil? Or is your goal to prepare them to defend against it? Now, I'm a strong advocate of protecting the innocence of children. Okay, we need to protect their innocence. But at the same time, we need to realize that we need them to be able to defend against evil for two reasons. Number one is 
it's going to come into their life. They're going to have to confront it at some point. So telling children there is no such thing as evil, don't worry about it, we'll always take it. At some point, whether they're 8, 10, 12, 13, they're going to run into it at some point. So you need to teach them defense mechanisms on how to discern it and to deal with it. But here's the other issue, is evil is also in our own hearts. And they're going to have to confront their own nature at some point, right? And so if they have learned skills on how to defend from evil out there, then it makes it easier for them to defend skills against the own evil in their heart, which in the Bible, that is called self-control. And that's where virtue is born. So training in righteousness is about preparing for evil, not avoiding evil. For, because God says this. He says, I'm not going to weed your life. I'm not going to weed it. You're going to live in a world where you got weeds all around you, and they may be your neighbor. <laughs> so the parable of weeds is all about God's plan to allow us to grow strong in the field of this world, even though we can be surrounded by weeds. People, whether they know it or not, people, whether they know it or not, who are undermining our faith. So be aware. This is the nature of where the kingdom exists in the great in-between before the final conclusion of all history. So our challenge is to be people who are determined to live in the kingdom of God. And living there, when you live in the kingdom of God, it is a place of strength. It is a place of refuge. It is a place of security. It is a place of growth. And most importantly, it is a place of love. Let's stand for closing prayer. Lord Jesus, we are so humbled by your invitation to us to surrender ourselves, follow you, and live in your kingdom in this world. Amen. God bless you guys. See you next Sunday.